Hello everybody and welcome to the Ottawa Wrench podcast. The Ottawa Wrench is Ottawa's only street newspaper and you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter or our website ottawawrench.ca where you can find all of those which will be in the description. If you would like, you can make a monthly donation of your choice to our Patreon, which will also be listed in the description. And so on today's episode, I shot a rather short interview with Nira Dukran, who is the Green Party candidate for the federal riding of Ottawa Vanier right now. Unfortunately, the interview wasn't as long as we would have liked, so we only got to cover the basics, but I think we got some good stuff. Stay tuned until the end if you're interested in hearing some material I cut out of the feature piece. Nira and I talked a little bit about philosophy and I thought I'd cut it from the main clip because it doesn't exactly have a focus on homelessness and poverty. I'll also include a, a, a longer um, closing statement than usual. We're looking forward to bringing you guys some great new podcasts in the future. One guest I've set up is Ron Winston, one of our regular writers for the Street Stories section. So make sure to subscribe to our podcast. One last announcement. The next issue will be out Thursday, April 13th. You'll be able to find all the new content online and we'll post on Facebook uh, places that you can find physical copies of the paper. And so without further ado... Here is the interview. Okay, so I'm sitting here with uh, Nira Dukran, uh, the Green Party candidate for the uh, MP riding for Ottawa Vanier. When I was looking at the platforms for all the parties and I was mm-hmm. looking for people to talk to, um, the Green Party platform was the most robust. There was uh, more stuff in it than uh, all the other parties' platforms. Uh, is there a reason why you, uh, what is the reason why the Green Party finds it important to be so detailed in their platform rather than vague? Well, that's a really good question. It's a question I'm happy to answer because it's why I chose the Green Party when I decided to enter, um, put my name forward. Um, our platform is solid and robust and covers the whole gamut of um, uh, from, from the economy to the environment to social justice. And uh, I would say in short answer to your question, why is it so robust? Because we're not just dreamers. And the Green Party, I think what I've noticed in talking to people on the campaign trail is people often say, well, that all sounds really good and utopian and ideal. We can't really do that. We can do that. And I always invite them to take a look at our platform and take a look at what we're proposing to do while balancing a budget. We don't propose running deficit budgets to... Um, balance economic development with environmental sustainability and environmental protection. Nature doesn't run a deficit. And our platform and our whole paradigm and way of thinking is to model ourselves on the efficiency and elegance of nature. That's what appeals to me so much about this platform. And so the way nature doesn't make garbage and nature doesn't run deficits, if we follow that model, we have then a program that at a, at, at a human level emulates the way nature operates. And um, we want people to understand that. So the, part, the platform is continually being you know, fleshed out, fleshed out, fleshed out, so that people can see that it's not just a bunch of you know, ideals, but there's a whole lot of thinking around how to implement this 
in a practical, realistic way. Okay, that was a cool answer. Fulsome, fulsome yeah. Answer. One of the things I noticed was how much uh, the platform focused on lower income people. Yeah. So particularly, I'd asked uh, uh, Christina Wilson, the independent candidate, a similar question about how a lot of the time, the language used by politicians, uh, which kind of ties back to what you were just saying, is uh, um, the middle class. They yeah, always talk about the yeah. middle class. Um, so I wonder if you could uh, kind of say something about why there is that focus on the middle class and why it seems like the Green Party is a little bit different in that regard. Yeah, I, I think not enough people have taken exception to the Liberal Party's sort of motto and slogan of strengthening the middle class and supporting the middle class. The assumption mean? there, A, what does it mean? Define your terms. That's a philosophical <laughs> And B, the assumption, unexamined, that everybody is dying to become part of the middle class or aspiring to middle class says, and I challenged that yesterday at the Rogers Live debate, at uh, the, the debate at uh, Action Sandy Hill, which is televised if you want to take a look at it, because I addressed a lot of those issues around... Um, middle class status I mean the bottom line if you start if you start either the bottom or the top however you want to look at it is a western definition of middle class lifestyle from my understanding and I was born middle class I mean my father was a teacher my parents were both university educated in Winnipeg the western definition of what a middle class lifestyle consists of is not something the planet can sustain I mean if the 8 billion people on the planet now if, if our aim, and that's the assumption behind the liberal, you know, that, that sort of central message of supporting the middle class and the assumption that everyone's trying to get there is that if the rest, if all the Chinese and all the Mexicans and all the, and every, and all the you know, native groups around the world are trying to get to be middle class, we will, we will completely exhaust the planet's resources and capacity before we get there. So that's not actually a sustainable goal. That's one. If you go back to the origins of the Green Movement in the 70s, post-war, um, Rachel Carson and all that stuff, there are limits to growth. There are, there are real limits to the planet's carrying capacity, and there, on a moral level, are real limits we need to place on ourselves about our consumption. And if we're not prepared to do that, our governments need to show the leadership to both incentivize through tax credits and, and, and taxation, uh, and by example, and by public information, need to show leadership in curbing the levels of overconsumption, waste, sense of entitlement that we have, that we deserve everything. You know, that little bubble of the post-war boom generation, the boomers, who were born into a North America, especially the U.S., that was energized and created as a superpower, elevated to superpower status by investing in, you know, making a lot of money out of World War II, basically. That was a bubble in time. That was not the beginning of the hegemony of North America in running the world and exporting our standard of living to the rest of the world it's a it's it's disaster it's a recipe for disaster and we need to have a reality check and that's what the green movement is about it's a reality check about needing to balance economic development and environmental protection and human notions of human good right when you know a Donald Trump has gold faucets in Trump Towers and people here don't have shoes or food or, 
you know, refugees are losing three fingers trying to cross over a border. Like, we know there's something wrong with that, right? Every six-year-old knows that. Every 66-year-old knows that. Redistributing our goods and changing our consumption patterns and changing our paradigm about who deserves what in this world post-colonially, right, is, is something that we must do. And the levels of third world poverty that exist in this country, you know, Canada on national um, standard of living indexes rates third, I was listening to this yesterday on CBC, rates third in uh, standard of living when you look at our sort of settler population, when you use that language. When you apply the same standards to the ab to Aboriginal Canadians in Canada, we rate 63rd. Wow. How is that happening? Yeah. And that's the most, I think that's the most extreme example of the of the gap between the rich and the poor in this country, is between kind of nice settled middle class Canadians and Aboriginal Canadians in this country on every level, right? There's lots of other kinds of poverty among newcomers and refugees and the working poor and I've been there. I've been working poor, right? And so, um, in fact, I still working poor in many ways. If you look at some of those indicators, like my postal code, etc., right? Um, and whether or not I have savings and investments, right? Although I'm a, I'm a quote-unquote middle-class teacher, right? But I'm kind of genteel poor is what I am. And so, these are real issues that we need to address. And uh, so, so if you go back to a bottom line, sensible approach again, the Greens advocate for a guaranteed livable income so that every Canadian, regardless of every kind of qualifier, from socioeconomic status to how recently you arrived, if you're a citizen, you have a guaranteed livable income that makes sure you have enough food on the table, a roof over your head, health care, all the necessities of life. And once everybody has that baseline, then we can look at how you want to aspire to higher things. But Maslow's hierarchy of needs will tell us people need security first, and we're all connected. So we can't have huge parts of our population systemically disenfranchised, dispossessed, homeless, uh, jobless, or underemployed, or misemployed, you know, job employed, and think that we have a successful country or successful society. And in the end, if everything's connected, it'll come around to bite us in the end, right? And you see this in other countries, you see um, in many other countries, including the United States, the whole notion of security and gated communities because the poor are banging on our doors to get what we have. Well, we shouldn't have that level of poverty where people need to be banging on our doors to get what we have, right? If, if the middle class is feeling insecure and putting more alarm systems in, maybe we ought to look at solving poverty instead of paying more money for stronger alarm systems. That's a big paradigm shift for a lot of middle class people. There's a lot of empty middle class rhetoric going on in this country that needs to be called, right? It needs to be called for what it is. All right. Well, uh, Nira, it was a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Uh, uh, good luck in the election and uh, have a, uh, take care. Thank you. It's really, really great to talk to you. I hadn't heard of Ottawa Ridge before. And this afternoon, I'm going to go online and check it out. It's really good work you're doing. Thank, Thank you very much, Joey. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned if you want to listen to the piece where Nira and I talked a bit about philosophy. Before I get into that, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Ryan Drummond for the song that's playing right now. It's called Reflections in the Rain, and it can also be found in the description. So, initially I had planned for an interview for about a half an hour, and that got cut in half simply because of uh, different people's time constraints and such. I wasn't going to ask my philosophy question with the new time constraint, but Nira's first answer seemed like the perfect segue for it. 
I kind of wish I'd stayed to my plan and got to talk more about policy. Specifically wanted to talk about the details of the proposed basic income and housing first strategy, but I guess that's just the way it is. Uh, Nira has a, uh, has a master's in philosophy, and I'm a philosophy undergrad who recreationally reads this stuff. In fact, to give you some magician's tricks, when I've written my two lifestyle pieces before titled Being There and Small Things, my idea was to take philosophical concepts I've learned through studying and try to communicate them in the most accessible way that I could. The title Being There is the English translation of a concept in Heidegger's um, called Dasein. It's also the title of an excellent film starring Peter Sellers in 1979. In the interview, Nira mentions Hegel. For nerds who care, Hegel is considered an integral part of the German idealism movement. He's championed by many in the realm of politics even today. Karl Marx took it upon himself to say in his masterwork, Das Kapital, that his whole philosophy was to take Hegel and, quote, put him on his head, changing idealism for materialism, but much of the structure remained the same. Hegel was writing in the early 1800s, and around that time, with many other Germans, they started to sound more like Indian or Chinese philosophers, especially a guy called Schopenhauer. It's notable, to me at least, that uh, around this time, there were a lot of Jesuits traveling to the Far East and coming back writing mystical treaties. That's what Nira is talking about here. A general distinction between the East and the West up until that point was that the West tended to look at things in a sort of atomistic fashion, uh, like atoms. Coherent logical statements were the key, and you would use them to argue that your opponent's apparent coherent logical statements weren't coherent and logical than yours were. Uh, however, the uh, Eastern tradition was much more focused on diametrically opposed ideas coming together as everything. Think of the yin-yang symbol from Taoism. Uh, there's a white blot, and there's a black blot, and, and there's a white dot in the black blot, and there's a black dot in the white blot. That was hard to say. Opposites were interacting. Think of the colors as order and chaos, both existing within each other, and you couldn't have one without the other. That's... Uh, a very general idea of Eastern philosophy. Uh, earlier, I talked, uh, I said the word diametric, they were diametrically opposed. Hegel's philosophy was known as idealist dialecticism. So, the dia, dia meaning opposite. Uh, he was talking about roughly the same thing as Easterners, and I think that's why a lot of people kind of draw that distinction. Okay, so enough of my philosophy lesson. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, enjoy the rest of the interview. That makes me want to ask my other uh, question, sure, which is ahead. about the philosophy. You're yeah. a philosophy master, yeah. and uh, that's a particular interest yeah. to me. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering, like, is there any particular philosophy that has inspired you to, you know, be part of this, a um, certain philosopher? So, you know... The first thing that comes to mind, because I studied Western classical philosophy, is Socrates, right? Because and, and Platonic philosophy, because um, just as a method, as a man walking along the street asking people questions, 
he managed to be able to expose a lot of the inconsistencies, help people see the inconsistencies in the, between what they professed and what they were doing, or between what the rulers were professing and what they were doing. And that gap is the beginning of, of um, enlightenment and insight and wisdom, and that is what gives us the call to action. And it's that gap between reality and, and ideals that pushes many people into the field of action and engagement, and it, and it did for me. So that's one. Um, I also have a great, great, great respect for and admiration for Hegel. Friedrich Hegel, German oh, idealistic yes. philosopher. Yeah. And the reason I like him is because I really wanted to study, my background, as you might guess, is um, is Indian, three generations back. And I, um, I went, you know, to my professors in my first year at university in philosophy and said, I want to study Indian philosophy. I want to study um, Eastern philosophy is what I said. And they directed me to the theology department. This is 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago. No one was teaching Eastern philosophy here. What they were teaching was Eastern religion. And I didn't want religion. I'd grown up in Eastern religion as a Hindu. I wanted the philosophical, right? And I didn't want just Eastern. What I wanted was to balance out an Eastern and Western view of how the world works and how we should live in it, right? What is the good life, etc. They couldn't help me, so I ended up studying Western philosophy because this is where I am, right? Hegel is the, came the, the closest. Ground. Well, yeah. he came the closest to my mind, except for the pre-Socratics. I wrote one of my best papers on the pre-Socratics because I think the best of Plato is based in the pre-Socratics, and they understood the world as constantly in flux. Hegel is similar in talking about being and becoming and that, and that life and reality is moving through stages of being and becoming and that the mind fixes things on being because the mind, limited at the level of conscious mind, needs to, to, to stop the passage of time in order to understand. We abstract. And this is very abstract of what I'm talking about now. But, but to understand and live with the flow of life and not to compartmentalize it, not to abstract so much that you no longer are really dealing with life in its fullness and its flow and its vibrancy. I mean, this is a big problem philosophically. At the bottom of so much of what we do wrong in the in the West and now across the globe because we've exported that way of thinking, right? But Buddhist, Aboriginal ways of thinking, um, a lot of women-based ways of thinking, earth-based theologies, so sort of the eco-theology, eco-feminist theology, these are all bringing us back in the 20th century, using 20th century language, to this understanding that the world is a beautiful truck, think green, think clean, right? And so I'm very hopeful that we're moving back to that. The thing that's lagging furthest behind in that paradigm shift is our government structures. Business is on board. A lot of business is on board. They're at the leading edge of things, you know, very progressive businesses. Um, our government structures and ways of thinking are holding us back, which is why I've entered, entered to, to try and help with um, thinking differently. We need to think differently. We need to think green before we can act green. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, it's cool. I love it. That's why I'm in it. I love it. It's cool and it's real. And you got to build your foundations. You got to build on strong foundations. That's the strongest foundation there is. As a philosophy major, you know, we philosophers are the ones who want to, you know, we ask all the questions to get down to the bottom line, the ground of all being, the ground of everything. And then we want to build up from there. I don't, I don't want to build on sand. I want to build my life and my efforts in the world out there on solid ground. And this is the solidest ground I've found. To date, I would love to keep talking about that, but I should yeah, ask yeah, yeah. the, the other ahead, questions. Okay, so um, 